First Peter chapter five, verse five, today's message is about humility. And it's not a standalone message because the message on humility is given in the context of God's grace in Christ. Peter wrote in this letter, we haven't gotten to it yet, we will next week, but he wrote at the end of this letter that he is exhorting and he is declaring the true grace of God. And so this passage says that God gives grace to the humble. So humility is in the context of grace. It is the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross for us, the gift of salvation that comes from that cross that makes humility make sense. I hope that becomes real to you this morning. We have humility, deep and genuine humility. It's even possible for naturally proud people like us because of God's grace. So keep that in mind as we read this morning about God's, about humility in the context of God's grace. Peter has been writing, as we just said, about the true grace of God, the salvation that we have in Christ. He's already said that we have been born again to a living hope. There's a grace. We're waiting for salvation or the grace that is to be revealed to us when Christ returns. There's a grace. He has been raised from the dead. We have hope of the future. There is a grace. He has told us who we are in Christ, that we are to collectively God's people in the world. We are trophies of his grace. We're to declare the excellencies of his grace in the world. And so, as such, sojourners, we've been called to live. He said honorably. He said helpfully. Now, he says humbly. So if you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is God's word. You may be seated. The Christian is called in this passage to take on two postures. The first is toward one another. That's verse 5. The posture of humility toward one another. The second is in humility coming under the mighty hand of God. That's verse 6. God is also presented in two ways. There's a proverb tucked away in verse 5. My Bible, my translation, has these words in quotation marks to say that this, he's quoting a proverb, and it's this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God is presented in two ways. First, as opposing the proud, and second, 
as giving grace to the humble. So Peter used the proverb. It's Proverbs 3.34. He's using it to make his point. And the point is really made visible in one of the parables that Jesus taught. It's in Luke chapter 18. Here's the parable. There were two men, and they were both at the temple so they could pray. Now, one of the men was a Pharisee. That means he was a religious leader among the Jewish people. And it says of this man, the Pharisee, that he was standing alone. A very interesting little phrase that Luke gives us there. He is standing alone. And as he's praying, he looked up to God and he told God this. He said, God, I am so grateful that I am not a sinner like that man. And then he told God all about his good deeds. The essence of this man's prayer is basically this. God, I'm so glad I don't need you. The other man was a tax collector. Now that means he had a reputation. He had a reputation for being a man of low character. But he stood at a distance. And he was so convicted about his own sin in his own heart that he wouldn't even lift his eyes to look to heaven. He pounded on his chest and he simply said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus said, after he told the parable, Jesus said that the humble tax collector, not the proud Pharisee, was the one who was justified before God or forgiven of his sin. There's the proverb visible. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The parable is seen in Jesus, the, the proverb is seen in Jesus' parable. The proverb is applied by Peter in the words that we're reading today. He's applying the proverb in this way. Humble yourselves toward one another and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The grace of God is given to the humble in the form of his forgiveness in the form of his deliverance and his help and provision in need and protection. His grace is seen in the form of inward growth in holiness, peace and comfort in situations of life, sustaining strength in trials and temptations. Whatever the need may be at any given moment, when the humble person cries out to God, what comes back from God is called grace. It's not that humility or, or being humble puts us in a position that we deserve God's grace or that we in somehow earn God's grace by our humility, grace always remains grace, which means whatever comes from God is unearned by us, undeserved by us. It is a gift. But it is that God's response to humility is his grace because he sees in the person of humility that that person sees his need. 
And that person is opened up by the Spirit of God, by the work of God's Spirit. That person is opened up to receive from God. That's the essence of humility. It's to put yourself in a position to receive something from God. If you've ever received a large gift from someone, you know that slight bit of discomfort. Why? Because it communicates you needed it. And nobody wants to be in need of anybody else. God responds to the humble because the humble see and are opened up to receive. Humility, unlike pride, is receptive. Even, even as it is the Spirit of God who works the receptivity in us. The proud are closed off in isolation, the isolation of self. The proud are standing alone like the Pharisee, standing in opposition to God. The humble being receptive, being made to see their need and being receptive receptive, are given grace. So God is presented in these verses as opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. And because no one has life, no one can live without God's grace. Peter's calling us to humble ourselves. This is the only way to receive. Peter is not telling us to take on a moral virtue called humility for the purpose of presenting ourselves morally good and righteous before God. This is how twisted we are. We will take even humility and turn it into a human virtue by which we earn something from God. Peter is telling us that God is gracious and that we must have the grace of God for salvation and for life and for all things and that it is the humility of faith that receives this. God gives grace to the humble. But why? Why does God, the first part of the proverb, why does he oppose the proud? Doesn't God want people on his side who have something to be proud of? Why does God oppose the proud? Because no one is righteous before God. Human moral righteousness, human moral progress is the false narrative of history. And to claim otherwise is to close ourselves off from God's grace. Why does God give grace to the humble? Does God really want losers? Weak and meek and head drooping whiners? Is that who God wants on his side? Well, first of all, that's not really what humility is. There's a lot of self-conscious, self-fixation in whining. God does want, however, to give grace to the humble because the humble are open to him, done with self. The truly humble are done with self, self self-trust 
and every other self-hyphenated thing we could come up with, done with it, and therefore receptive to God. So that's why Peter calls for humility. Humility, it's hard to define. It's, always, it's, like, it's like so many things in life, you know, you know it when you see it, even if you can't define it. But we'll try. Here's my stab at it. Humility is a posture of mind and heart. That means it's an attitude that a person has. When that person sees him or herself in relation to something or someone else, and in relation to something or someone else, humility causes us to be respectful, deferential, open to receiving, submissive, but not in a way that we would describe as having poor self-esteem. Because poor self-esteem can be another way of self-fixation which is a subtle form of pride. Humility is the posture that we have when we're not really thinking about ourselves. We're not fixated on ourselves. Humility is a posture that we have in relation to another, but it's when we are really considering the other and not even ourselves. In relation to the, the other, we come to a true view of ourselves, and it's, it's true. It's not just a perception, it's not a self-fixation, it's not self-indulgent, it's just true. And being true, it's proper. And the other that we're talking about is God. We're not talking about seeing ourselves in relation to someone else because that's a comparison and that's gonna to lead to jealousy and that's gonna to lead to pride that's going to lead to self-esteem fixation, high or low. We're talking about in relation to God. True humility, saving humility, Christian humility, is what a person possesses when he or she stands before God and sees God truly and then sees self accurately. Some people don't want to stand before God. They'd rather just avoid Him and continue to compare with other people to try to figure out who they are as selves. Some people do stand before God, but they don't see God accurately. That's the Pharisee that Jesus, we just talked about that Jesus told us about. And these people don't become Christians. They don't become Christians because they never see themselves in relation to to God or they avoid God or they see God but they don't see God clearly but the people who see accurately God and themselves are humbled all of them in the Bible did basically the same thing they bowed in humility and when they did they received grace and they become Christians Christians by this they see God they see themselves, they see their need, and they receive God's way of being made right with Him. The place we stand before God to see all of this is actually located 
It's at the cross. It's at the cross of Christ. At the cross, we see God in Christ. At the cross, we see Christ. At the cross, we see ourselves. At the cross, we see the holiness of Christ. We see that he on the cross, as we read about, as I prayed about from Isaiah 53, he is the one who was without sin. This is what Peter said in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He committed no sin. The people who followed Jesus and loved Jesus and were actually there when he was nailed to the cross, all of them who had the eyes of faith, all of them who could see Jesus accurately, all of them came to the conclusion, this man on the cross didn't do anything to deserve to be there. He's absolutely holy, perfect in all of his characteristics. And before the cross, we see love. We see Christ's love, willing. Willingly he died. He died our death. He died for our sin, and therefore he died our death. We're going to die physically. He died our spiritual death. He died the death that is due to us because of our rebellion against God. He took it on the cross. We see the love of Christ doing it in our place willingly. We see the love of the Father. You read, especially John, the Gospel of John, toward the end, all through it, but toward the end, like around chapter 17, and you start to hear the prayer and the conversation of Jesus Christ the Son of God with God the Father and they talk to one another and Jesus is talking about the love the love that the Father had for him and the love that the Son has for the Father and you see all that moving toward this place of the cross where the Father's love in sending the Son is expressed and seen most evidently and the Son's love of the Father and the Son's love of us is seen most powerfully when Jesus gave himself there on the cross. And we see his power. He is mighty to save, mighty to accomplish, mighty to endure, mighty to overcome sin and death and the devil. And we see his grace because he's giving us what he earned there, what he earned there, the payment of sin, the death of death, he earned it, and then he gives it. It's grace, it's a gift. And what we see on the cross is we see Christ's humility. He humbled himself. And then we see ourselves. We see our unholiness. It was my sin that nailed him there. We see, like Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. I am unclean. We see like Peter, the man who wrote this in the boat that day when Jesus performed another miracle of catching fish and Peter realized it wasn't about fish. It was, a it was about Jesus revealing his holiness and he fell down before Jesus and he said, I can't take it, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's humility. It's not poor self-esteem. 
It's right esteem. It's not poor self-esteem. It's humility. We see at the cross of Christ that we are not only unholy, but we are unable. If we were able, he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't have to be there if we were able. He'd tell us how to get it done on our own. We say at the cross, no righteousness of our own can cause us to stand here. We see our need. He's the only way. He's the only hope. There's no hope without him. And what does it do to us? Now this, this is the work of the Spirit to bring true humility. And then in this humility, what happens? What happens inside of the person who's been humbled by this vision of the cross where Jesus is and where we see ourselves? What happens? Well, certainly, humility, when we see clearly the Spirit has allowed us to do so, certainly there is a repentance that comes. A repentance that comes. There must be a heart-quickening repentance, conviction of sin and repentance for this. We're returning from this pride that has kept us from God all of our lives and we're turning to Christ on the cross to embrace this. There must be a repentance and there must be a receptivity. In other words, we have to say, I can only receive this. All I have is an open hand to receive. I've got nothing to offer. Christ, save me. It's an openness. It's exactly opposite of the Pharisee. It's exactly like the tax collector. And there's a reverence. Humility is a bowing low. It's being brought low, but it's being lifted up. He's the lifter. The the psalm says he's the lifter up of our head. He lifts us up in reverence to him so that we can respect and give deference to and worship this one who is on a cross. This is true humility. So, we can't just jump into the two postures that we take, humble yourselves before people, humble yourselves before God. We have to come back and situate ourselves in the proverb, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We have to ask, do we have this grace? Have we received this grace? Have we received this salvation? Have you humbled yourself? Have you truly seen, truly seen? Now, this is so important because the the gospel message is more than Jesus will help you. Let him. It's Jesus died for you. Receive him. Are Are you bowed low? Because that's what it will take. Have you seen his holiness, his love, his power and his grace and his humility, because that's what it will take. Do you, you see yourself as unholy and unable and in need? Are you repenting? Will you receive him? God gives grace to the humble. It's beautiful. There's not a testimony of a person who ever existed who would say I was brought low at the foot of the cross and received this grace and now I regret it. That testimony does not exist. 
It's the testimony of I was brought low, I was undone, I thought I was going to be undone, I thought I was going to come apart. But there I found a Savior, there I found grace, there I found forgiveness, there I found a God who loves me, and He has lifted up my head, and I am forever free. Come to Christ. And then, then with this grace, we have two postures as Christians. The first one. The proverb applies to both, by the way. The, the, the first one is toward one another. The second one is toward God. But the proverb applies to both. The first one is we come, people who are, have received this grace, and we turn toward others in humility. The proverb applies there. And, and we turn toward God and under his hand, and the proverb reply, uh, applies there. We humble ourselves for his grace. So first, the humble person who has received God's grace turns toward others in humility that's verse five. He says, all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So that, and toward one another. That means you and me. All of us. Last week, it was to the elders, the shepherding, the overseeing. This week, it's to all of us. We're all included and we're all included equally. This is the message. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves. It means tied on. Put on humility. It's like tying on a garment. Like tying on a towel. Who's that like? It's like tying on a towel like Jesus did. John 13. He got up from that last supper. He poured water into a basin. He girded. He tied a towel around his waist and he knelt down and he washed their feet. If you've received the grace of God in humility, now take up the grace of God in humility and tie it on. You stood before your closet this morning and you said, what am I going to wear to church? I said, Beth. Am I okay? And she said, you're fine. Because I knew I needed to put something on to come to preach today. He says, put on humility. Did you take that out of your closet today? And put it on. Take up the humility that was yours when you were at the foot of the cross, put it on toward one another. Not in comparison to one another. We didn't come to compare ourselves. We came to serve. You can't serve somebody if you're comparing yourself to them. Toward one another. Do, and, and do we really even know if humility exists until it's actually fleshed out toward one another? To be clothed in humility toward one another. When I have seen God in Christ on the cross, when I have seen myself before the cross in humility, when I have repented of my sin, when I have received his forgiveness, when I revere him in worship, then 
I clothe myself with humility and I turn to you. I turn, my, my posture is toward you and yours is toward me. When I turn to you and you toward me, we are not proud. We're not closed off from one another. We're not self-righteous. We're turning toward one another by considering one another as more significant than ourselves. That's not self-esteem. That's obedience to Christ, Philippians 2. We're considering our, our own selves in light of God's grace, and then we're considering one another. When we turn toward one another, one another clothed in humility, then we give to each other as has been given to us by Christ, forgiving each other as we have been forgiven, receiving from one another because Christ has given to us all gifts, serving one another because Christ stooped low to serve us, loving one another because Christ first loved us. This is humility. If we don't, if we don't, then we're right back to the proverb. God opposes the proud. If we don't, then we show ourselves to be opposed by God in our pride. If we do, back to the proverb, we're now open to grace upon grace upon grace upon grace because we're humble before God. Brothers and sisters, in this congregation called Grace Community Church, let's dress, let's dress ourselves in humility toward one another. Dress ourselves for life among your friends, among your coworkers. Put on humility. Get dressed in your marriages. The number one ingredient in a marriage is humility. It is not perfection. It is not even compromise. And there is no good communication without it. It's humility. Everywhere. Dress yourselves with humility toward one another. Second, those the humble person who's received God's grace comes under the mighty hand of God, verses six and seven. Therefore, he says in verse six, that's what connects it back to verse five. The proverb still applies to the ongoing relationship that we have with Christ. Humble yourselves. This is a command to the person who's already been humbled in faith to receive Christ. Now, continue to humble yourselves. Continue to receive God's grace. Come under, by coming under, that's what it means to humble yourselves, to come under the mighty hand of God. Come under the hand of God to take refuge. Now, I don't know what, I don't know what mental picture you have of coming under a hand. It might not be a good mental picture. I am aware of this. There are many people who, when they, when they hear the phrase, come under a mighty hand, they see a hand coming at them for all the wrong reasons. I certainly recall when my children, when my daughters were young, and I loved to caress their face. I loved to hold their faces in my hands. And I, I remember specifically saying to myself, Scott, whenever, whatever you do with your hand, 
Make sure that when your daughters see your hand coming toward them, they never flinch. That they always want to stretch their neck to let you hold them. So I don't know what image you have of coming under the mighty hand of God. But the hand of God is the hand of refuge. And you come under it. The hand of God is a hand to be submitted to because he's guiding you. The hand of God is a hand that you hold. It's a hand that you revere because he's powerful to save. Come under the mighty, strong, sovereign hand of God. The hand of God is the hand of God that delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt at the Exodus. And that deliverance required humility because God said to them, I am going to deliver you by my mighty hand and I'm going to do it through the sea, not over it, around it, under it. You remember the childhood song. I'm going to deliver you through the sea and so you're going to have to submit. You're going to have to come under my hand and walk through a sea when you've never done that before. But come under it. The hand of God is a ruling hand. Isaiah 40 talks about this, but prior to that, in the book, in, in the Judges, the times of the Judges, as, uh, God's hand is a ruling hand, and the people in the times of the Judges simply would not submit to the rule of God. But it, it requires a humility to come under the ruling hand of God. The hand of God is a protecting hand. And that also requires humility. Because God protects us on God's terms. We have to live humbly before him so that he can protect us. God's hand is a providing hand. But again, that requires humility because God's provision is in God's way. I've asked God for things so many times and he doesn't give it to me the way I want him to give it to me. But looking back over a season of discipline and prayer and sanctification, I see, oh, he did provide, just not in the way I thought he, that he was going to, the way I wanted him to, and that requires humility to come under the mighty hand of God. All of this requires humility. Doing so, he says, results in being exalted. In verse 6, being exalted in due time. And the, the exaltation is connected to the grace given, which means that we are saved, we're delivered, we're guided, we're granted, we're helped, we're protected, we're rewarded, we're glorified in his time. And that, too, we must yield to in humility. God has his time. I prayed this morning, come, Lord Jesus. And the next thought was, why, Lord, why haven't you come yet? When are you going to come? <laughs> As if I'm the only person that's ever prayed this. Like, just only God and I exist. Lord, when are you coming? It's like, don't you realize I'm working in the world? I've got my timing. I will come back. Don't lose heart. But in my timing, humble yourself before me. Verse 7 is an example, it's an application of how to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Humility in the many things that causes anxiety. That's what verse 7 is all about. He says, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is casting our anxieties upon the Lord because it is admitting that we really don't control things. I don't like to use little slogan words and phrases like magic. I'm not into magic. I have a savior. But that in his name, you know, we say pray in his name. I still use it because it means something. And if the Lord wills is another one. If the Lord wills. I don't use it magically to say, well, if I say, well, if the Lord wills, that means, well, he's going to will it because I, I said the right thing. But James tells us, we say, if the Lord wills. And so humbling ourselves, casting our anxieties upon the Lord is humbling ourselves because we realize we really don't control things. It's, it's if the Lord wills. The Lord controls things. We, we're, it's humbling ourselves because it's an acknowledgement when we cast our anxieties, our cares upon the Lord, we can't fix everything. We, we can't acquire what we need. But God can. And God will. We're coming next week. Lord willing. We're coming next week where it tells us what God will do in the end. He will. To those who look to him. Pride, I can, I must, I will take my own soul into my own hands. I will make my life work the way it should. I will attain the righteousness that is needed. Pride trusts self. Pride becomes the self-hyphenated life. Humility, I can't and I won't. And I won't even try to trust in myself. I trust in God alone. I cast my cares upon him. This is humility. Peter's own experience with this is very helpful to us. Peter was a very anxious person because Peter denied Christ. And he thought to himself, how am I going to repair this damage? Have you ever hurt someone so badly and you just felt horrible? That was a sense of anxiety. That's what that was. It was a sense of anxiety that you were feeling because you were thinking subconsciously, what can I do to repair this damage? And Peter came to the realization that he couldn't do anything to repair the damage. The restoration that he needed to Christ was beyond his ability to provide. Humility was required. He could only receive it. He could only receive forgiveness. He could only receive restoration as a gift of grace as he humbled himself in faith. And we too are so anxious about so many things. We're anxious about our sin. We're anxious when we fail. If you're a Christian, you may be anxious that you're going to fall away. You might be anxious that you're constantly falling short. You might be anxious about the future. You're anxious probably because you feel like you have to protect yourself and everybody in your life. You feel like you're anxious because you feel like you've got to perform the tasks just perfectly. Humility takes all these anxieties and casts them upon God 
and trusts that he cares. He'll forgive, he'll cleanse, he'll keep. He'll get us all the way home. He'll provide where provision is needed. He'll protect where protection is needed. The world is hard, the world is bad. Bad things happen. God in his sovereign grace for his children protects as protection as needed. As hard as that is, as difficult as that is, it's a promise that we submit to because it's in the Bible and he gave it to us. When we live in this kind of humility, it's grace upon grace upon grace. So, congregation, the call today is to humility in the context of grace. It looks like this, all right? Look to Christ and the cross. Look to Christ raised from the dead. Look to Christ now reigning as Lord. See his holiness. It's beyond yours. See his humility. It's for you. See his grace. It's to you. And then, when you do, repent. Receive. Worship. Put it on. Turn toward one another. And come under God's hand. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Without him, this would be foolishness. We know that. Without Christ, this would be foolishness. But in Christ, it makes so much sense. One died for all, that all might die to sin and live. So take the words today, Father. Do as you will. Let them land, congregation. Let God's word land the way it should. Receive it in faith.